0: Hello from the children of planet Earth. Three, two, one, zero. Lichter. We have a Hi, I'm Dr. Amanda Bauer.
1: And I'm Dr. Alan Duffy.
0: We're astronomers.
1: And in this podcast, we talk about the astronomy that excites us.
0: Like every star you see in the night sky probably has a planet around it.
1: That feeling you get when you look up at those stars and realize there's a planet there. A planet. And it may have something on it looking back at you. That's what we call cosmic vertigo. Five, four, three, two, one. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. End of death.
0: Our sun is not the only star that has planets around it. Other stars, in fact, almost every star we've looked at, has planets around it
1: and this is a really recent change in our understanding i mean just a few decades ago we really just had this theory that's what it was the hypothesis that maybe there were other planets around stars because there were planets around our star
0: and i just want to start with one story when i was a phd student there were other students at the same time who were doing their thesis on finding planets around other stars and there were talk after talk after talk of this is my technique and this is what I've done and I have to sit there for an hour and the conclusion was nope, haven't found any exoplanets yet and oh, I would get so bored with this and this happened for a good five years until finally the techniques were refined enough and our telescopes were sensitive enough that we started ping bing ping ping finding little exoplanets and then the field about 20 years ago just burst open so from uh, 10 years ago 10 years or so ago, maybe even less, yeah. 2006 really the thing that initiated needing to define a planet and booting Pluto out of our solar system therefore, or out of our planetary classification, Mm -hmm. uh, we have now found over 3,000 confirmed exoplanets.
1: That experience of going to a night sky and you can see all the stars, and the chances are so small to actually detect those planets, the fact we find so many means that on average, effectively every one of those will have a planet around it, and that's I can almost grasp that on the astronomical scales.
0: <laughs> there are several different ways that planets have been found around other stars. Two very successful ones. We essentially watch the stars that host the exoplanets to see if they wobble or to see if they wink. Now, the the wobble technique is using something called the Doppler shift that we're all kind of familiar with. You hear a train coming towards you, and its pitch changes. And as it gets to you, it peaks, and then it starts to drop in its pitch again. So it's like, Excellent production. Uh, I (laughs) I hope we have a
1: sound engineer who's going to help
0: us with this. Sure, I'm sure we do.
1: So this is familiar to anyone who's heard an ambulance drive by. As the object comes towards you, the sound waves get bunched up. So it goes up in pitch, so it's... Do, do, No. Oh, I did it the wrong way. Around. <laughs> so it goes up in pitch.
0: You want to start a little lower.
1: And we'll just have
0: production. Go. Take away. In. So that happens with sound, and the same thing happens with light. As an object is moving towards us, its light shifts to a bluer color, and as it moves away, it shifts to a redder color, and we can detect that with our telescopes.
1: For example, the Earth is pulled by the gravity of the sun around the sun, keeping us in its orbit, but our gravity is pulling back on the sun as well. It's just we are tiny relative to the sun, so you get a slight pulling of the sun around, and effectively it's better to think of it like a wobble. Now, that is an impossibly small shift in the star to actually see directly.
0: Yeah, if the planet is closer or if it's bigger, then you see a bit stronger of a wobble.
1: Yeah, I mean, if the planet was effectively the same size as the star, so you had a binary system, then you would actually be able to see the relative motion of those stars. But we can do something really incredible, and this is we can measure the speed of that star. We can actually see its wobble, and we do that using the Doppler technique. We can do this at and, and this blows my mind. We're getting to the stage of a toddler's walking speed, like sort of that crawling speed.
0: <laughs> my toddler moves pretty quick. <laughs> yeah,
1: especially when you're not looking at <laughs> it. God, she is gone. <laughs> this is incredible and we need the sort of Ida level accuracy of toddler kind of speed measurements to be able to detect the gravitational pull of an earth-sized world around a sun like star that is the next step what we call the next generation telescopes these 30 meter class behemoths it's incredibly exciting and that to me is is really where the whole field opens up in searching for potentially habitable worlds or worlds that we would directly recognize as earth analogs we're there with some other weird things but this is the one that there's just unquestionably would look like a solar system
0: uh, the wobble technique has been used by the biggest optical telescope in Australia. The Anglo-Australian Telescope has a survey that has now found over 40 exoplanets using this technique, just from the 4-metre telescope in Australia.
1: Nice. I don't know. 40 planets?
0: Mm-hmm. Ah. Australia stepping it up.
1: So this is one of the, I guess, like hot Jupiters, right? Mm, yeah. Those are the huge signals where you have a massive world really close... It's being whipped around in its orbit by the star, so in turn, it is really wobbling that star around. Really easy to see, and that's why we first detected them back in... Yeah, one of the very
0: first planets that we actually ever detected that was convincing (laughs) was uh, 1995. And this was one of the first planets that was around a sun-like star. The planet is 51 Pegasi b. Another example of fabulous astronomy naming systems. Uh, And this was a Jupiter mass planet about 20 times closer to the Sun than we are to ours. Uh, So it was a a surprise to us that it was a Jupiter mass planet. We weren't expecting to see such big things in the first few that we found, I think.
1: Yeah, and definitely not that close to the star. I just It's still weird to me that we've actually seen the Jupiter-sized worlds so close to their star that the atmosphere is now getting blasted off. You've actually got... Uh, wind, the force of the star's light and radiation, is pushing the atmosphere of this hot Jupiter away, and we can actually see that beginning to block the light. It is an amazing example of just how wonderfully weird and varied this universe is. Planets are the kind of boring things that roll around. Gravity is really easy; it's just a very elegant system, and yet you get these incredible systems like, well, 51 Pegasi b, which would be. You know, if not blasting its atmosphere away, it would certainly be uncomfortably hot, I would imagine, <laughs> on the surface.
0: Well, it's probably closer. I mean, there's a planet called Sweeps 10, which I think is a hilarious name because this planet is so close to its parent star that it whips around at an orbit of 10 hours. So every 10 hours, this planet goes around its star. Oh, wow. So Sweeps, uh, named after... I mean, I don't understand why we have to name stars like this, but Sweeps J175902.00-291323.7 the name of the star. Isn't that romantic?
1: And for our listeners, Amanda just did that off the top of her head. There's no notes. She just knows astronomy that well. Doesn't Fred Watson have an asteroid name after
0: him? Yeah, he does. (sighs) That's That's kind of my goal. You know how people can buy a star and think that it's really officially named after him? That doesn't Happen? Yeah, we
1: don't use that name. That, yeah. that is not nope. a real name for us. The, in the International
0: Army. Astronomical Union has to verify names of, of astronomical objects. And so if I could get an asteroid named after me or a comet, that'd be awesome.
1: I want to work through these numbers. Okay. There are 400 billion stars in our galaxy alone, give or take. There are, roughly speaking, 1 in 10 is a sun-like star, so 40 billion. And I think we're now at the one in five for an Earth-like world around that sun-like star.
0: Mm, yep. So
1: one in five, well, we'll call it one in 10 for an easier fraction. Four billion, four billion Earth-like worlds around sun-like stars in our galaxy alone.
0: Woohoo! party!
1: <laughs> that just means you and me just have to agree that we'll share the name for one of those and every other <laughs> pair in all of the world And that's it. We get to name, we all get to name every single one of them. There are more than enough alien worlds out there, Earth-like alien worlds, for us all to get to name them.
0: Four billion Earth twins out there. That's crazy.
1: And one way we can find those kind of smaller worlds and that are more distant from their stars is with the wink technique.
0: Wink, wink. So the Wink technique is more officially referred to as the transit technique. And we see this happening in our own solar system when a planet passes right in front of our sun. So Venus will pass in front of our sun, and we, we call it the transit of Venus. Now this happens in distant solar systems. You've got a sun, and what we look for is the light of the sun to dip just a little bit. Even 1% or less as the planet passes in front of the sun, blocking some of that star's light. And then the planet moves to the other side and continues on its orbit, and we get back to the regular amount of light that we get from that star. So if it's going to be a planet, this dipping in the light will be a periodic thing. So if the planet orbits on, say, one-year orbit, then every one year we will get a drop in the light for a few days or so as that transit passes in front of it, or even a shorter time frame, depending on how far away we are and what the angle of the system is. Now we have to be very lucky in that we have to be completely edge-on for this system to wink at us. If the planet orbits kind of around it up and down, if we're not completely edge-on so that star does not get blocked by this planet as it moves around, we're not going to see a wink. So it's a pretty small fraction of planets that will actually detect using this technique. And yet, 80% of the known exoplanets have been found using the Wink technique.
1: So the star isn't twinkling. That's what happens as it passes through our Earth atmosphere. It's just a steady glow, steady point of light. And then it just occasionally winks. A
0: tiny fraction of light gets blocked. A tiny fraction. I mean, the bigger the planet and the closer the planet is to the star, the more light gets blocked.
1: Ah, No. Just the size of the planet, this radial extent.
0: Oh yeah, because I guess if it's farther away from the star. It doesn't matter star. if
1: it's even further away. What does change is how long does it take to, to
0: pass across in front of it? Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. Which is why it's really good to find planets that are further away from the star. The problem is you also then have to wait longer to see that planet mm. again. So we would want to see that dipping of the light a couple of times, at yeah. least maybe three, five times to be yeah. confident. Which means you can only see planets or confirm them when you've seen a few of those orbits. So if you want to see an Earth-like world around a sun-like star, that means you would have to wait three to five years to have seen that rotate around its star, enough times for you to go, aha,
0: I'm convinced this is actually real.
1: So instead, we have a large list of potentials, a smaller list of confirmed, and there's other issues, including sunspots, that also dim the starlight, and they go around the star the surface as it rotates so it would appear that something has passed between us and it has indeed, it's just on the surface of the star not actually uh, a planet When you have that wink method a little bit of the light may go around and through the atmosphere of that planet
0: This is the coolest thing ever
1: (laughs) (laughs) You get to take a spectrum, so you break that light up you see what it's made of the atmosphere and the star and then you wait for the planet to pass and then you take your spectrum again and then that's just your starlight. You subtract one from the other and all you're left with is what's in the planet.
0: The planet's atmosphere. Ultimately, we're going to be able to see if any sort of life has altered that atmosphere Mm -hmm. to give us a hint that life might be on this planet.
1: It's incredible. What we would look for are chemicals that shouldn't exist together or at least they don't tend to exist for long. So methane and oxygen. This is an Earth's atmosphere. It is constantly being replenished by life you would need something to be replenishing it if you were to detect it in another alien world and this is technology that exists today it's really hard next few years we're going to get the next generation telescopes up and running and you can do this you can actually start to find the biosignatures of life I just find that such an exciting time and this is what we'll be doing in more detail (laughs) in the next podcast
0: Absolutely, aliens, they're out there
1: And it's not just bio biosignatures, so by that I mean these kind of potentially biologically created chemical compounds like methane. There was a paper, I think it was like Avi Loeb wrote this, mm-hmm. where they worked out you only needed the levels of CFCs in the atmosphere to be 10 times what we have produced in Earth's atmosphere to actually be detectable from another world. In other words, it's not just seeing, ah, oh, it's mm-hmm. methane, oxygen, maybe it's some kind of biology. It's Oh, man, that civilization is polluting its atmosphere. (laughs) We can see that air pollution, these impossibly complex chemicals that can only be created through industry and a particularly suicidal kind of level of industry where they're (laughs) quite happy to just pollute that. We can potentially see that from an alien planet, which means with only reasonably more advanced technology than we currently have, any alien life could actually look at our atmosphere and they could see the CFCs that we've released.
0: They'd be like, look mates, we better get on that.
1: So our third and final favorite technique is probably the one that I guess would be most obvious, you know? <laughs>
0: yeah, it makes sense. Let's, um, we,
1: we, um look. Let's uh,
0: take, take a picture of it. <laughs>
1: It's direct imaging, is the fancy term for looking, and you're trying to see the relatively tiny planet beside the stupendously bright star. And right there, I've probably given away the difficulty with this, you are looking for a firefly against the incredibly bright lights of a stadium. That's a difficulty. So you need to block the light of that stadium, the star in this case, and hopefully your planet is far enough away that it's not sitting in the middle of that black out region on your telescope. And you can actually see a little bit of reflect sunlight, starlight from this planet. And there it is glowing, hopefully, in your picture and you can directly image it.
0: And by blocking out the starlight, we literally mean putting a disk or something in the telescope system that covers where the star is.
1: Like a fancy disc, like a super crazy <laughs> fancy disc, right?
0: Right. Like, you know, a, a well designed disc.
1: <laughs> yeah, but still like a disc. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yep. Probably not paper, probably a bit more fancy. And really, it's like you holding up your hand to block the sun. And being able to see, you know, a plane reflecting that sunlight glinting off towards the horizon. But you should never look directly at the sun. Do not look
0: directly at the sun.
1: Astronomers do, but we even (laughs) block that light.
0: We're smart enough to block the starlight first. (laughs) Since most of these exoplanetary systems have been found with the Kepler Space Telescope, a lot of them have been named... Kepler-11, Kepler-16b, Kepler-22. Very exciting naming conventions, but it doesn't take away from the excitement of these planetary systems. So, Kepler-16b is a real-life Tatooine. This system actually has two stars orbiting around each other, and they've got what is called a circumbinary planet. So this planet is going around both of these stars.
1: This is such a bad idea for a planet. (laughs) Like, this is a terrible choice of location. Under the gravity of these two stars, you are basically between two giants that are at any moment liable to just slingshot you out of that system. It's incredibly unstable. It wasn't actually believed to be possible. Yeah,
0: we weren't looking for these sorts of things.
1: Yeah, it turns out George Lucas, well ahead of us, (laughs) us theorists in the 70s. (laughs) We have this idea of these stable zones around stars. And that's really easy when there's just one big star at the center. It's a very stable environment. Even then, you know, Jupiter, for example, would have kicked probably some protoplanets out of our solar system. And then you just replace... Jupiter with something that is a hundred times bigger, some crazy amount Huge. bigger. Huge. And
0: I mean, these systems, when you've got more than two bodies, become quite unpredictable. From yeah, the three-body
1: system. Yeah. A theorist's
0: point of view, I mean, they just become chaotic after a certain amount of time. So, the likelihood of having any sort of planets, it is a very specific region which they can form in and exist around a two-star system.
1: And it wasn't even clear how they could form because you essentially have that gas cloud that collapses and forms these two stars and that primordial pancake that planets would form from. Is it lying between them or is it just one planet system forms around one star but then gets captured by the binary? I mean, it is an unexpected kind of a system. Now, I'm sure there are theorists out there who predict this. I was genuinely surprised by this. Now, I am no expert in planetary formation. I just thought this was mad. So I was so happy to find the Tatooine system was a real thing because it just reaffirms my faith in Star Wars as one of the (laughs) all-time greatest film sagas in history.
0: I'm with you there. So the Earth-like system is so exciting because we do think that in order to answer the question, is there life out there? we need to have liquid water. And so in order to get liquid water, you need a planet that's not too close to its sun to evaporate all of that liquid water, and you need it to not be too far away from its star so that it's not all ice. You need it to be somewhere in this habitable zone, the Goldilocks zone, so the temperature can be just right for liquid water. And we have roughly 300 or so Earth-like planets now, but the challenge is... We don't know how dense they are. We don't really know yet what their atmospheres look like. We only know the potential for whether or not they could have liquid water. Doesn't mean that they do.
1: Yeah, and th- I mean, that is a big if, because Venus is effectively habitable zone if Earth is habitable zone. We are the twins of one another in terms of our sizes, and yet Venus is a hellish nightmare, so.
0: The Earth-like definition only goes so far.
1: Yeah, we want the atmosphere too.
0: Yeah. One of the bigger surprises in the recent exoplanet search is that one of the nearest stars to our sun, Proxima Centauri, actually has an earth-like planet around it. This
1: is mad. Oh, this is crazy. This to is me. exciting this science stuff. Science fiction didn't even say this. They didn't dare say this. And yet, yeah, we have something that is just four like 4.2 light years,
0: light years I just, away. Nothing. Proxima Centauri is a red dwarf star, so it lives for a very long time. It's pretty cool. So the planet is close to it. It's Earth-like in that it's in the Goldilocks zone, but it's very close. It orbits around every 11 days, so it's got a quick year. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, that's horrible. What age would I be? Hundreds, yeah.
0: (laughs) It's probably um, tidally locked because it's so close, so the same face of the planet is probably facing the star as it moves around. So, I mean, these aren't great conditions for life because the side facing the star is probably pretty hot most of the time and facing away is going to be a lot cooler. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't necessarily have to be life like we know it. Any kinds of life could pop up there.
1: Yeah, and having such uh, effectively an immortal star, um, lasting trillions of years, you have time to evolve, right? You have time for chance chemistry, whatever, to you know, have life arise. Maybe that life finds itself on the borderlands between the day side and the night side, mm. where just hurricane strength winds are whipping across <laughs> from the hot side. And you're kind of in this nice shady spot in the middle into that darker, colder side. But
0: I mean, we could fathom anything, That's all the cosmic vertigo we've got for you this time. I'm Amanda Bauer.
1: And I'm Alan Duffy.
0: And this is produced by Joel Werner.
1: In the next episode, this happens. I could only hate you more if you said Jar Jar Binks at this oh, point.
0: Oh, that is fair. Oh, my God. <laughs> hate, hate that thing so Let's much. Let's never speak of that again. Oh, God.